0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. You can be seated. I think we should just say amen and go home. Um, Because, man, I can't follow that. This is going to be a big letdown. But hold on, because there's going to be a whole bunch of cuteness up here at the end. And uh, in the meantime, just enjoy my mustache. So, um, I know... Uh, it's a guy thing, but um, uh, if you're if you're uh, joining us here, whether you're on campus or online, I just want to say welcome or welcome back. And if you're a guest with us today, I know there are many parents here today to see their grandkids or their children uh, sing at the end of the service. I just want to welcome you as well. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve the church here as the lead pastor. And there's no better Sunday for you to have come as a guest to Sunridge if you're interested. And who Sunridge is and what we're all about. Immediately following our service, we have a meet and greet. We call it Welcome to Sunridge. It's just we uh, we just like to say hello to you. We don't have any big agenda, just to tell you a little bit about our church and learn about you. And it's in the last room on your left as you exit our main hallway. So I'd love I'd love to have you there. I know it's kind of scary to go meet the pastor, but uh, most of our folks can tell you I'm just a regular guy. Some days I'm really regular. And, uh, you know, so, come on. Um, So, anyway, I'd I'd love to meet you guys. You know, this is Palm Sunday. It's a day in the church calendar that marks the beginning of Holy Week, which we've been talking about. And it's a tradition that is focused on the last week of Jesus' life, from his entry into the city of Jerusalem, his suffering, his execution on the cross, and, of course, the celebration of his resurrection. And the roots of Holy Week can be traced to a, a very early time in Christianity. In fact, uh, <clears throat> there's a 4th century ancient text that was discovered uh, that, that talks about pilgr- uh, Christians making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, to reenact Holy Week, and uh, that was in the 4th century. So by the year 300, a Holy Week kind of practice was already beginning. And as you can see, if you have notes, this is not a fill-in-the-blank thing, but there are really five days of observance in Holy Week. There's Palm Sunday, which that's what this is. It marks the day that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and began Holy Week. There's Monday Thursday, which Monday comes from the Latin, which means command, because Jesus, after he washed the uh, disciples' feet, he said, I give a new command to you, that you love one another. And that's why some traditions... Uh, on Monday, Thursday, they wash one another's feet. Then there's Good Friday, which is there to remember the crucifixion of Jesus. And I know that if you're, if you're not familiar with that tradition or church, calling the crucifixion of Jesus a Good Friday, is, it's kind of weird. Um, and, but I would say that although it's horrific, it is good. It's very good. It's supremely good because through his death, Jesus took on our sin, allowing himself as a son of God to hang on the cross on our behalf. And it was his death that made the good news possible to us. By the way, we have a Good Friday service this Friday. It's at 7 p.m. and our doors open at 6 p.m. for you to observe the stations of the cross. Then there's Holy Saturday, which marks the hours Jesus spent in the tomb. So remember, after the trauma of Friday, the disciples awoke to the ongoing reality That Jesus was indeed dead. And they're afraid for their lives. They were full of doubt. If you read the Gospels, they were despondent and without hope, and some appear to even have abandoned their faith. And that's why when you read the account of the resurrection, you only find women disciples at the tomb on Sunday morning. And even when they go to the men to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus, the men are reluctant to even believe the women. And Holy Saturday is observed by uh, silence and abstinence. And then last, but not least, is Easter Sunday, a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And Sunridge at East, uh, on Easter or Easter at Sunridge this year, is, uh, we're going to be celebrating at 8:30 and 10. And I'm going to give you uh, on Easter, I'm going to try to talk you out of becoming a Christian about even being a Christian. I want to talk about all the reasons you shouldn't become a Christian, and then maybe I might talk a little bit about the one reason why you should. So invite your friends and family. But it all starts with Palm Sunday. So what is Palm Sunday all about? It's an amazing event in the Bible, celebrated by millions, ridiculed by some, and misunderstood by many. All four Gospels... Uh, have a record of Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem. You can find it in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and of course as Amanda read in John 12. And you should read them all just to see the, the variances, the, difference, the different perspectives that the authors of the Gospels, what different things that they saw from their vantage point. <clears throat> obviously today we're going to be looking at John's rendition, but referring to some of the others, and I'm going to put any new passage up on the screens for you to see. Do you realize that from the passage that Amanda just read, from John 12, the entire rest of the book of John is all about Holy Week. It it just captures the last week of Jesus' life. So why is Palm Sunday such a big deal to us? Well, number one, it was the first time Jesus had visited Jerusalem since the beginning of his public ministry. It's obvious when you read the accounts in the Gospel that Jesus had become pretty well known, There were those who had seen him, in other words, eyewitnesses of his miracles. Many of them are followers and believers now. In verse 17 of John 12, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the womb. These are the people that were with him. And they saw this happen. But then there were also those who had only heard of him, never having seen his miracles. In verse 18, many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, Went out to meet them. So where did they hear about Jesus? They heard about him from his followers, for sure, because they would have naturally talked about Jesus. But there are even those who wouldn't be considered believers, or probably had only kind of heard about Jesus and knew that this was going to be a significant event because he's a new rabbi on the scene. Over the last three years, he had been performing miracles, even raising the dead. In his teaching, he champions the causes of the poor, the marginalized, women. He's, he's revolutionary in that way. And his teaching seems to be engaging and compassionate and subversive to the Pharisees. And so wildly popular with the people, just regular people, especially the unreligious people. I love what Andy Stanley says. He says that people that were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus So everyone knew, everyone knew that it was a huge thing that this rabbi was coming to this most holy of cities, home to the Jewish temple and the heart of the Jewish faith. So Palm Sunday was a big deal because of the talk about Jesus. But it was also a big deal because it was Passover. At Passover, the city of Jerusalem is buzzing with people who have all come to celebrate this most celebrated event in Jewish history. Literally thousands of people pilgrims, pilgrim, pilgrimed to uh, Jerusalem at that time. And the streets are just filled with the energy of all those people. And after Easter, we're going to pick up our study of Moses. We've been studying the life of Moses. And we're going to come to the first Passover. So it's going to have a, a much bigger, uh, we'll have a better understanding of what that is all about. But Passover, if you're not familiar, is a tradition that celebrates how God led the children of Israel out from slavery in Egypt, and then he launched them ultimately into their own land and their own history. So it's, it's kind of like Independence Day that we celebrate here. It's a national but religious holiday to them. So Palm Sunday is a big deal in the first century because there's a huge national celebration going on in the city. And finally, it's a big deal because it was the climax of Jesus' ministry. Those familiar with Jesus knew everything he was teaching, everything he had had come to do was moving toward Jerusalem and what would happen there. Jesus had been telling them that everything was leading to this moment. In Luke 9, verse 51, he said, as the, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, which means, it literally means he set his face. You know that, that saying we have, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Luke goes on in 1322, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he went, always pressing on, pressing on toward Jerusalem. And then later in chapter 18, Luke, Jesus makes it clear that when he got there, it wasn't going to be exactly like everybody was thinking. He says in verse 31, taking the 12 disciples aside, he said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true, and he will be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon, and they will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. This is why this moment in the first century is such a big deal. Jesus was focused on this moment, and his his whole entire life came down to this. And it was all going to take place then and there in Jerusalem because Jesus had a single mission in life. It was to give his life. The gospel of Jesus Christ... You may have heard that phrase, even if you're not a religious person. It it means good news. And the good news starts with bad news that human beings are separated from God. Our sin, our brokenness, our choices, our innate ability to make ourselves the king separates us from God. And so Jesus gave his life so that that gap between God and man could be bridged. He gave his life willingly. And that is why he's come to Jerusalem. So that's why we're still talking about Palm Sunday here. 2,000 years later, it really is the beginning of the most important week in the history of the human race because of what would happen there. Now, how did people respond to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem? Well, it's a variety of responses. First of all, many gave him the red carpet treatment. You know what that is, right? The red carpet treatment. In John 12, 13, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means praise God or save us now. It can be the expression of, of praise or the cry of a prayer. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is an allusion to Psalm 118 when they're welcoming an honored leader to their city. And he says, blessed is the king of Israel, which is, a, which is a reference to King David. And to the Hebrew people, that ancestry is indicating that Jesus is a king of another type. He is a new king of Israel. And you know, there are other, uh, in some of the other accounts of this entrance in Jerusalem, it says that some people were throwing their garments down. So that Jesus would walk on them. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, many of the Jews believe him to be the, full, the, the coming, delivering king. He, he, brings the, he is the messianic promise, the answer to all their prayers, the one who would fulfill all their hopes and dreams. They wanted all the miracles and the healing, and they wanted him to throw off the oppression of the Romans. They wanted the food and the housing and the opportunity that the good news brought. They wanted a good life with their family and in their marriage, and their, and with their kids and their grandkids. And Jesus represented that to many, many people there. But not everybody was stoked that Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem. The Pharisees weren't thrilled. They weren't stoked at all. After describing the celebratory atmosphere of the people, John continues in verse 9, the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him." The Pharisees, if you're not familiar with that word, the religious leaders, the ones that were looked up to by Jewish people at the time, not just religious leaders, but those with all the political power, they're not so thrilled about Jesus showing up. Why? Well, we're going to see in a, few minute, in a few minutes. But how did Jesus respond when he arrived in the city? Did he kind of bask in his glory and victory as they dumped Gatorade containers on him as he walked into the city? Or did he talk about how he was going to shoot a commercial for Disneyland? Nope. Mark tells us in Mark eleven fifteen 15, that on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow, allow anyone to carry merchandise through the ta- temple courts. You know, every speech or every sermon is supposed to have the hook at the beginning, you know, that thing that catches your attention, why you should listen to what follows. And some of you have uh, either been amazed at or confronted by some of my introductory remarks of sermons to get your attention. I've done the sledge I brought a recliner chair up here as an object lesson. I've showed videos of penguins. I had a tug-of-war one time on the stage, all to engage you and cause you to lean forward to what I'm about to say. And Jesus flipped over tables, he drove people out, and he blocked people from coming back in. Not what you'd expect, right? Talk about a parade killer. What if I did that? And then after, after Jesus' introduction to what he's about to do, he teaches And does he say, well, let that be an object lesson to you of how you should not behave? No. He doubles down, and Mark continues in verse 17, and he taught them, and he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? How do you think that played? Could he have been more confrontational? In verse 18, Mark continues the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. Have you ever felt that way about one of my messages? (laughs) Because they feared him. And as Amanda read earlier, because they saw the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So in this moment, things get real. This is intense. (laughs) So why is Jesus stirring up so much controversy at this nice religious event? Why is it being so difficult? He's doing it because the temple is the center of worship for Israel. It's a sacred place. The temple was first built in Jerusalem by Solomon, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, and it was reconstructed during the time of Haggai and later expanded by King Herod. And we'll see soon, as we go through our study with Moses, that it starts off as a tent, or your Bible might call it the tabernacle. And then during Jesus' day, the temple was a place where you came to worship God. That's where you came to contact God, to be close to Him. And people would bring their sacrifices, and they would confess sin there, and they would leave cleansed and forgiven. And Jesus enters this place overturning tables and giving a temple message like they never heard before. And they needed it. Why? Well, as people came to Jerusalem for Passover, they needed animals uh, that met the qualifications for the sacrifices that were part of their religious observances. But because many of them had come from so far... They couldn't bring animals with them, so there were animals there to purchase. It was kind of like a cottage industry that arose out of that need, and I, and I imagine for all the right reasons at first. These vendors were there to sell animals for sacrifice, so think kind of like a swap meet. But they were taking financial advantage of the worshipers who had traveled so far. And that's not all. Because people would bring a monetary gift as well for the poor as part of the celebration for Passover. So they had to have vendors there to exchange currency. And because their gifts needed to be in the currency of the, of the local currency, which makes sense, right? But not only are these buyers inflating the price of animals, they're gouging people by charging ridiculously high rates in the currency exchange. And all this is going on right in the outer court of the temple where Jew and Gentile can worship and pray. This was supposed to be a place of worship. It was sacred for sacred activities. And wouldn't you think that those in charge, the religious leaders, they would have done something about that? At a certain point, you would think that they would see how far off they have gotten. But they didn't. And many scholars believe they were actually complicit in the whole matter because they were probably getting kickbacks from the vendors. It had become corrupt. The whole enchilada. And evidently, it had just felt normal to everyone there, to the vendors, to the worshipers, to the spiritual leaders. And you say, how could that ever happen? How could, how could that happen? Really easy. And you know, it doesn't take long before something like that gets justified. It becomes normal. And it feels good. It, even, it might even feel right. But to Jesus, the entire affair made a mockery of what was supposed to happen in the temple and um, before God and those who had come to worship Him. So how did Jesus respond? By making it clear that their religion was contaminated. Their religion had become filled with greed and the pursuit of power. And by power, I mean pursuing their their political connections, and hedging it. Their religion had turned into a show. And all of these symbols and all their rituals had lost any connection with the heart that was supposed to be behind it all. And the people didn't matter anymore. There's no conscience and the people that are imposing this, they, they seem to have no conscience as to what they're doing to their own people. Passover was a holy event and supposed to be a celebration of how God had rescued the Jewish people from Egypt, how he had protected them from death, freed them from slavery, and brought them into a place of promise where they could flourish. But their religion had gone totally off the rails. It had become the worst of what it could be. And that's about as far as I want to go in the text. And if you're, if you're a Sunridgeer, you know that usually in my little talks, if you want to call them sermons or messages, or you might have another word for them, I don't know. I always ask, what about you and me? What does this mean to you and me in 2023? In the Temecula Valley. You know, when Jesus overturned the tables in the temple and said that God's house is to be a place of prayer for all nations, but they had made it into a den of robbers, he was saying that our focus, our intention, must remain pure and uncontaminated. Now I know that we're not inviting Jesus into our city today, and we're not inviting him into a temple, but let's ask ourselves, what does it mean if we're going to invite Jesus into our church? What does it or into my life? Or into the place that I work? or into my home? Well, if we're going to do that, I have three ideas. I'm a preacher, three ideas that I want to share with you as we kind of talk about how this applies to you and me. If we're going to invite Jesus in, then number one, we must invite the real Jesus in. The real Jesus. People who shouted, Hosanna at Jesus' arrival to the city just a few days later, you know, are shouting, crucify him. Why? Well, because they got bamboozled by other people and because... They discovered some things about Jesus that didn't sit well with them. And they had Jesus wrong. They had the wrong Jesus. So when we invite Jesus in, he can't be a Jesus of our own making. He can't be the cultural Jesus. He can't be John Wayne Jesus. And he can't be the Jesus to do it it if it's what you feel, Jesus. He can't be the personal preference, Jesus. He just has to be Jesus. And I know I've shared this quote from one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, before. So if you say again, just read it again and enjoy it with me. If you've never heard it, you're going to love it. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) I love that. So when we talk about inviting the real Jesus into our lives, in a fair reading of the Gospels, If you can't find Jesus saying what you're saying about life or society or people or holding a belief similar to yours or holding it in the way that you hold it, then you should give real serious consideration as to whether you're inviting the real Jesus in. And you know, Jesus doesn't care if your favorite person said it, even if he's your pastor or you watch him on TV or YouTube or whoever you follow. If he's not lining up with Jesus, Jesus really isn't interested in what that person has to say. Because he's Jesus. And I don't know about you guys, but I see people saying all kinds of things about Jesus, speaking for Jesus, quoting Jesus, and for the life of me, I can't find anything that they say close in the gospel. I can't find it. And you know who they are just like I know who they are, right? I mean, just the other day, I was listening to a guy. You guys would all know him if I said his name. I know a lot of you listen or watch him. And he was claiming to speak for Jesus, going on about this and that, and I thought, that is not what Jesus said or meant. He sounds nothing like Jesus. You know who I'm talking about? Me. I tricked you. So the next time, you're really, really on fire about something. And you're right beyond all dispute. Check yourself with Jesus. Because if you're going to invite Jesus in, you have to invite the real Jesus in. Second thing that I think we learned uh, from this event is that we have to invite Jesus all the way in. We've got to invite the real Jesus, and we have to invite him all the way in. You know what I mean by that? I mean, they loved having Jesus at the parade, right? But once he got in their temple, it was uncomfortable. Isn't it true that if we invite the real Jesus in, there are spaces that once he's there, you're like, awkward. <laughs> and it's usually affected by who else is there with you, right? Like I think I've talked before. I don't know if you guys knew this about me or not, but I used to be a fireman. And I would watch movies or shows at the fire station, and I'd say, man, that's such a great movie. I want to," And I'm like Cindy when I get home. Let's, let's watch this movie. And it's one thing to sit there with a bunch of firefighters and watch it. And it's another thing to sit there with your wife, who's like the fourth part of the Trinity. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I didn't remember that was in there. <laughs> like, it's all who's there, right? One of the best or short, re- short reads or analogies, whatever you want to call it, on this idea is, it's like an oldie. It's by Robert Unger. It's called My Heart, Chrysome. Home. Anybody ever read that before, that old one? Okay. A few old school people here, you should. Uh, and it's based on this. In uh, John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come in and make our home with them. So um, Munger kind of explores what that would be like, that Jesus and God are uh, making their home with us. And the further Jesus ventures in to the house, the more uncomfortable it gets. So, like, there's the greeting at the front door. It's like, hey, Jesus, come on and Welcome, you know, come on in. And then he walks in, and you're like, you're. he walks into the library, and he looks at what you're reading, what you're intaking into your brain. And then he goes to the dining room, and he discovers your appetites what we're feeding ourselves. And then he comes into the living room, and he observes what we're, what's entertaining us today and the company that we keep. And then he looks in our closet. You getting it? And in, in the end, he's saying, you know, what Jesus wants, he doesn't want to stand on the porch. He doesn't just want to be in the library. He wants the whole title to our house. So I know we love uh, Jesus to be in our worship space, our hands raised, tears welling up. And we love him in our devotional space. We love reading the Gospels and feeling Jesus' presence or listening to great podcasts. But, I mean, isn't isn't it worthwhile for us to ask ourselves, is Jesus really welcomed all the way in, all the way into our lives? Is he welcome in my marriage? Is he welcome in my family, in my home? Or if he showed up with the kids, ask like, who's that guy? Is he welcome in my bank account? Is he welcome in my browser history? Is he welcome in our conversations about people when they're not there? See, welcome when we express our values or how we express it or the choices that we make. If we're going to invite Jesus in, we have to invite the real Jesus in. We have to invite him all the way in. And last, if we're going to invite Jesus in, we must tenaciously guard the purity of our faith, which is kind of like, that's kind of like a summation of everything that I'm talking about right now. We have to be ruthless about this. Ruthless in preventing the contamination of our faith. You see, they had allowed their most religious symbols, their most symbolic religious celebration, to load up with all these things that, didn't, that it did not enhance their experience. Many of them were actually in contrast, in conflict to the whole point of the matter. What was supposed to be a celebration of their freedom took advantage of people actually re-oppress them in a way. And what was supposed to be the focus of God, it was supposed to be focused on God's rescue of their lives was overtaken by profit. You know, none of us likes contamination in our food, right? I mean, how many rat droppings are you okay with in your peanut butter? Well, just in case you wanted to know, A jar of peanut butter has at least 30 insect fragments in it. And it has what they call rodent filth. So you can interpret that. Um, So when you make your peanut butter and jelly sandwich... Um, they estimate that you are eating at least eight insect fragments and some rodent filth. A contaminated faith is a corrupted faith. But there's also a contamination of faith that isn't as repulsive. It's, it's more like additives to suit our preference. Like, you know, you know our dr- drinking water from the tap is a true miracle of modern civilization. The standards of drinking water are so high. And, and I think we'd all agree, like, we've got we to stay on that, and we have to guard our water. It should be protected at all costs. But, but many of us love bottled water, right? Talk about, like, pulling one over on us. It's free, but we're going to pay money for it. And it sells because it tastes good. Do you know why it tastes good? Not because it's cleaner. It tastes good because it has minerals that they've added to it to enhance its flavor. They figured out what we like in the taste of our water. And so they've added it to it, so it's not really pure. You guys ever watch that show, Tidying Up with uh, Marie Kondo? It's on Netflix. She comes into the house, and the people, you know, they're totally unorganized, and she, like, gets rid of their clutter and helps them uh, find their joy? Do you you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, hold this thing that you can't throw away. Does it bring you joy? No, it doesn't. Then why'd you guys turn me off over that? (laughs) Am I going too long? I'm watching you, Don. When we allow our faith to be cluttered with things that we don't need, we'll lose our joy too. See, Jesus doesn't want to share his glory. He's the entire and sole focus of the church and for the Christian. And his presence in our lives affects everything else. It's not the other way around. And he doesn't want our faith contaminated with things of the world, and he doesn't need our faith to be improved upon with our preferences. If you want to know how Jesus feels about how faith how he feels about when faith gets loaded up with all other matters than just look at his entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. That can tell us. He flipped tables over and he ran people out of the temple and he kept some of those people from coming back in. In essence, the entire clearing of the temple, during that, Jesus was saying, if you want to lay your palm branch down in front of me, then understand that means laying down your life in front of me too. So if you're going to welcome me, Jesus said, with shouts of hosanna and call me Lord, then make sure you're inviting me in, not some figment of your imagination. Jesus was saying, if you welcome me, then realize when I come into your life, I come as a son of God, and I intend to reign in your life supremely. Jesus was saying, if you want to believe in me, honor me, celebrate me, have anything at all to do with me, then know that it's not about religion, or a ritual, or a symbol. It's about a radical relationship with a a living God as a living God through the Son of God. Jesus said, if you're going to welcome me to your city and your life, then invite me all the way in. He was saying that if you're going to lay down palm branches in front of me, that's awesome, but I'm going to keep walking across them into the inner recesses of your life. And I'm going to enter some spaces... That will probably need rearranging and clearing up. And you have to be okay with that. And Jesus was saying if you're gonna welcome me into your life and realize I intend to rule when I live there, I'm not planning on sharing space with your views. I don't really care what you or your friends you follow say or believe. I won't share my space. And when I come in, I'm going to clean some of that clutter out. And my plan is to transform that space into a place where I'm comfortable. That's what happened on Palm Sunday. That's what it means to lay your branches down before him. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want to ask you guys that this, I was kind of real with you today, huh? You guys, still love me? Yes. Okay. So, let's make this observance, whether you're, you you like connect to all the symbols or whatever. This Holy Week, let's make it not j- about Jesus in a way that he's not just our forgiver, but let's make him our leader. And let's not just kind of like bring him into the places where it's comfortable. Let's invite Jesus fully in to our lives. And rather than like kind of just accepting everything at face value, let's let's ruthlessly, ruthlessly protect the purity of our faith that is focused entirely on Jesus. What do you think? You guys want to do that? I I want to try anyway. God help us to invite the real Jesus in all the way in and to protect that, his holy, sacred presence in our lives above all others. For those that are here and are exploring faith, I pray that they would see the reality of who the Son of God is, was and is, and they would take the first step toward inviting the real Jesus into their lives. Amen. Hey everybody, it's Britt again, thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.